to thank our brother for the kind words of welcome. It's good to be here. This is my first time in Crossgar, and it is nice to be here and to have fellowship with you tonight. Can you turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Second Samuel? Second Samuel and the chapter 14, please. Second Samuel 14. As my brother said, I, I guess I'm a third-year student, so I'm getting there slowly but surely. I've two and a half years done, another year and a half roughly to go, but by the grace of God, we're, we're getting through it. I just ask you to pray for the college. Remember us all in prayer, please, that the Lord will bless us and help us as we seek to serve him. Second Samuel 14. And we want to begin reading at the verse number 1. Second Samuel 14 and the verse number 1. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king, and speak in this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spake to the king, she fell on her face to the ground, and did obeisance, and said, Help, O king. And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, I am indeed a widow woman, and mine husband is dead. And thy handmaid had two sons, and they strove together in the field. And there was none to part them. But the one smote the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen against thine handmaid. And they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him. For the life is his brother whom he slew. And we will destroy the heir also. And so shall they quench my coal which is left. And shall not leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon the earth. And the king said unto the woman, Go to thine house, and I will give charge concerning thee. And the woman of Tekoa said unto the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, Whosoever saith aught unto thee, bring him to me, and he shall not touch thee any more. Then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldst not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Then the woman said, Let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my lord the king. And he said, Say on. And the woman said, Wherefore then hast thou such a thing, hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again is banished. For we must needs die, and there is water spilt in the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Amen. We know the Lord will bless the public reading of his own precious word. Just before we come to the preaching of God's word, we're just going to sing a couple of verses of the hymn 351. 351, when peace like a river uh, tendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. 351, and we'll stand to sing the first, second, and third verses. Verses 1, 2, and 3 only, please. Mm-hmm. 
back in your Bibles to that portion we read together in 2 Samuel 14, please. It's really the verse 14 we want to focus on. I was at a, a funeral service of a dear friend a couple of weeks ago, and the Reverend McRae was preaching at the funeral service, and he, this is the verse, one of the verses that he read. And from that point to this, the Lord has laid this verse on my heart. Verse 14, For we must needs stay, and there is water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that is banished, be not expelled from him. Let's just bow in a moment's prayer and ask for God's help through his word even now. Our God and our Father in heaven, we bow before thee, O Lord, and we have thy word open before us. And we thank thee, O God, it is a living word. And we pray, O God, breathe upon the sacred page. Speak to preacher and hearer alike. Help preacher and hearer alike, we pray. Lord, show thy people a fresh view of Christ. Lord, save the unsaved tonight. Any unsaved in our meeting, any online, Lord, show them, Lord. We must needs die. O God, we pray. Speak, Lord. Grant me clarity of mind and plainness of speaking. Speak through me and use me, for we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen and amen. There is a famous quote, but it is, Reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else. Reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else. It is a quote by the mostly well-known author, George Orwell. I'm sure most of you have heard of him. His books, Animal Farm, and especially 1984, are widely praised by the literary community. A man who was, as he said himself, an avowed atheist, a godless wretch, in one of his own essays, he wrote these very words. Till about the age of 14, I believed in God and believed that the accounts given of him were true. But I was well aware that I did not love him. He believed in God, but he didn't love God. This man preferred uh, philosophy and humanism and all the evils of this world and what they bring with them. His words, I said there at the start, his quote, reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else. That's a jab at the truth that there are many realities in this life. It is a way of trying to escape the fact that to the human being there are certain realities that must be faced. We cannot, for example, escape the reality that when the temperature drops, it becomes colder. The reality of when we're hungry, we need to eat. The reality that this world did not create itself, that there is a divine creator of whom we know is spoken of in the word of God. In the passage that we read, David is faced with a situation that in and of itself is not real. Verses one and two, or verses two and three explain that how Joab called the woman of Tekoa and told her what to say. Joab is concocting a situation and giving instruction to the woman. This woman goes to David and cries unto him, I'm a widow and my son has been killed by his brother in a quarrel. My family, they want to kill my other son and that means I will have no family left. She cries to David for help. David, in dealing with this hypothetical, this imaginary situation, this made-up situation, tells her what he will do and how he would do it if he was in the midst of the situation. The woman, however, she then hits back at David with the reality, the true situation. Why has David not brought Absalom back? Absalom had killed Amnon and it went into hiding for three years. Why is David saying that this woman's made-up son should live? though he has murdered someone else. Yet David's son, who again had murdered somebody, was a real person, would not be given the same leniency. The reality is this woman gives David a lesson 
in realities that we must face. David the king had come face to face with reality. Dear unbeliever tonight, unsaved friend, though you may not like it, you may not want to think it, there are realities that you and I have to face. There are realities all men must face. And most importantly, there is the reality of your soul and what you must do about it. These realities, they're summed up in verse 14, which we read together, which we're taking for our text tonight. And with that all in mind, I want us to consider for a few moments startling realities the sinner must face. Startling realities the sinner must face. And the first reality the sinner must face, and all men must face, is certain destruction. Certain destruction. Look what it says in verse 14, the first part. For we must needs die. The original Hebrew, if you were to read it in the original language, it literally would say, in dying we shall die. What it's really saying in the Hebrew is a very strong form. It's saying there's no escape from death. Absolutely none. The woman of Tekoa here is pleading man's mortality as a case for Absalom to be brought back to be reconciled to God. Really, she's saying here, King David, we're all going to die. Though you be a great king and though you've done these great things, though your name will go down through the ages of eternity as the mighty David of Israel, yet just like any other poor soul in this world, you will die. She's saying Absalom will die. She's arguing that because all will die all, and all must die, that Am- Amnon, the man Absalom slew, would have died anyways. Amnon would have died just like other men. She's saying to King David, O king, life is short. Death is certain. Bring back thy son. I said that our theme was startling realities the sinner must face. And I stress I speak not just to the unbeliever, though primarily I do. I speak to the saint as well. We're all sinners. We're all born in sin, shape and iniquity. Not one of us tonight can claim that we are anything but depraved and sinful in the sight of God. We've all broken the Lord's commands. We've all sinned against him. If you're saved tonight, you and I are simply sinners saved by grace. And that's the best we're ever going to be. At our very best, dear believer, we'll simply be a sinner saved by grace. The reality is true of us as well. Our first parents, they fell in the garden. We fell in them. Adam is the head of the human race. That's why we are one race, one great human race. The old scientists, they're beginning to realize that. They're beginning to see that. They're beginning to see that men and women came from certain one particular ancestor rather than all these different ways they thought before. The Bible revealed it thousands of years ago. Adam is the head of us all. And as the head... When he sinned, we sinned in him. The punishment of his sin falls on us. The loss of holiness he suffered, it affects us too. That sinful nature that dwelled in Adam after he fell is passed from generation to generation down to us. You ask me, how is this so? Turn with me to the book of Hebrews and the chapter number 7. Hebrews and the chapter number 7. And we'll see here how I can say that with all honesty. Hebrews chapter 7. In this particular uh, chapter, the Apostle Paul, I believe the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews, the author of the Hebrews, whoever he was, I believe it's Paul, is arguing about Christ's priesthood. But chapter 7, verse 9 and verse 10, what it reads there, and as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. Then look what it says in verse 10. 
for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now Abraham, as you know, in the Old Testament, met the king of Salem, that was Melchizedek. He met him and they break bread together. Melchizedek brought bread and wine. He's a picture of Christ. But here it's talking about, and it says, he was yet in the loins of his father. What it's saying there is, is that Levi, who came much, much after Abraham, who was Abraham's great-grandson, in fact, paid tithes in Abraham to Melchizedek because he was in Abraham's loins. In Adam's loins were all men and all women of future generations, friend. When Adam fell, so did we. There is no escaping our sinful nature. It is our nature, and it owns us. Sin dwells in every part of our bodies, our eyes. We look, we lust. Our feet, they run to sin. Our hands, they look, they grab for sin. Our mouths speak sinful things. And the punishment of such sin is death. What was Adam told in the garden? Whenever he broke God's commandment, thou shalt surely die. No escape. No escape. And the woman says here, David, you will die. David, Absalom will die. I will die, just as Amnon died and all those that gone on before. And sinner, tonight I say to you that you will die and I will die. And that's a reality that you need to face tonight. You're more certain of death than anything else in this world. Men think they might escape death. I was reading this week about a farmer in America called Harry Zeglund. Harry Zeglund was engaged to a girl in the 1890s and it broke up. He didn't end up marrying her. And that girl was so heartbroken that she sadly, she took her own life. That girl's brother went after Harry Zeglund, who was a farmer, and he went to try and kill him. He shot a bullet at him, but it only grazed Harry's shoulder, knocking him unconscious. The bullet then stuck on a tree behind Harry. That brother, he then took his own life, thinking he had murdered the man. But Harry Zeglund lived on. He lived on for another 20 years. 20 years later, this great tree, this great oak tree that he was trying to get out of his garden, out of his farm, he decided to use dynamite. I know it sounds crazy, but he did actually use dynamite to try and bring this tree out of the garden. He let that dynamite, it exploded. And that bullet that had been in that tree for 20 years killed Harry Zeglund that day. All men will die. That man thought he had escaped death that day. That man thought he had missed the bullet. He thought everything was going to be all right. 20 years later, that death came and he wasn't expecting it. There's no escape, friend. Death comes to all men. Look what the lady goes on to say, the woman of Tekoa in verse 14. For we must needs die, and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person. What a vivid picture this is of you and I, friend. You take a cup of water and you pour it out on the ground. You can't scoop it up again. If you're like me and you have children or perhaps grandchildren, liquid spills are very common. Solid food spills are more common as well, sadly, but we'll not go into that tonight. But if you could only scoop it up in a glass, it would make life a lot easier. But you can't. That liquid spreads out and it will evaporate if left on a surface that it can seep into and it will go away. You can't get it again. So is the life of a man and a woman. We spend our lives, however long they are, being poured out. What do I mean? Well, our energies, our health, our vigor of youth, we spend it and spend it and spend it. Our bodies only last so long and we pour out that body and that time in living here and we cannot gather that time again. I'm coming 28 in a few weeks' time. I cannot gather those years back to me. And dear friend, you cannot gather yours again. I don't know what age you are, but your years are poured out. Your life is poured out just like a glass of water. And it's getting emptier and emptier 
and emptier. It's just like a bucket with a hole in it. It's trickling away. That bucket at the start, it's all full and everything looks okay, but then it starts to trickle away. Before you know it, the bucket's half empty, and then it's completely empty. Age, infirmity, sickness, sorrow, life problems creeping in, the weight of your sins, friend, heavy on your conscience, knowing you have to face God who you've sinned against after death. We're poured out, and we cannot be gathered up again. The reality is that death comes to all men, and our lives will end someday. And friend, I say this, that's the first reality, that certain destruction, the destruction of death. Where will your soul be in eternity? Have you made plans for eternity? Have you made plans for death? Or are you more interested in tomorrow and the lusts of the flesh? There is a second reality here. There is a deferred retribution. A deferred retribution. And what I mean by that is that destruction and that retribution, that punishment, that payment that is due for your sins, it doesn't come straight away. You may ask, what exactly do I mean? Well, the sinner could be cast out into God's eternity at any moment. The sinner deserves endless punishment. That's just and that right is right. However, God defers that retribution. God gives men time. Men sin against God in thought and word and deed, yet God lets them live on. Why? That they might repent. Dear unbeliever, tonight, that reality is for you. There's a deferred retribution. You could already be lost tonight, but God in his mercy has given you time to repent. Look what it says in verse 14. We go on down. It says, Neither doth God respect any person. And what the Hebrew really means there, if you read it literally, it means God does not take away the soul of the life. And what that really means is God could condemn the guilty sinner for their crimes and be just. God is just and holy in all his actions. However, the Lord in mercy gives them time. Now, I don't mean God is unable to do so. I don't mean God hasn't got the power, for he has. Rather, in that mercy and that goodness, he waits. David, who the man in this passage, was guilty of lying, murder, adultery. We think of Uriah and his wife Bathsheba and all David did there. God could have taken away David's life. God could have said, no more will you be king in Israel after what you've done. God could have said, enough, David, you're dying now. But the Lord gave him time. Time to do what? Time to come to the end of himself and repent. Absalom had murdered a man, yet three years he lived on. God gave him time to repent. God could have taken away his life. The woman here in this passage, she's saying, God doesn't take the life straight away. She was telling David there had been time for him to sort things out with Absalom. God deferred the punishment. Such he does for the sinner. What mercy. Sinner, tonight your punishment has been deferred. You say, surely that is good news. And surely that means I've longed to live and little to fear. But dear unbeliever, it's good news in the sense that you're still in the day of grace. However, the question is, how long will God defer? Do you know? Do I How long will God forbear his wrath, friend? Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and the verse 4. Romans chapter 2. I want to read a verse here together. In Romans chapter 2 and the verse 4 we read, speaking about the sinner and they're inexcusable. You can read that in the first verse and then verse 4 and verse 5. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, 
Read verse 3 for context. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. Speaking of men who look at others and think they're great sinners, so they are. They've done these things against God, and they think that they're better than them. And Paul's telling them different. He says here in verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance, or deferring punishment and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. In other words, God is giving them time to repent. Look at verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, unrepentant heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What terrible words, friend. What terrible words. Treasurest up wrath. The wrath the unimaginable and uncomprehensible judgment of God. And yet those who are unrepentant, they heap it up. They treasure it. That's what the Bible's saying there. You love your sin so much, you love wrath. You love your sin and it brings wrath and you go head first into it. Man and woman, tonight, I pray, wait no longer. I urge you, repent. Believer, what blessings are ours? We were such. Do you not remember? Do you remember the deadness within before we were saved? The desire for sin and for the flesh and for all those things. That awful, discontented heart. What misery was ours without Christ in the world. Now I know at times the Christian life is hard. We have our, we have our burdens to bear. We have our cross to bear. And there's times we feel so cold and so empty before the Lord. And we feel our love is so very small. But the worst day as a Christian is better than a lifetime in sin. We know that. We've experienced it. We know the love of Christ. And sometimes it's because we come to the word of God and we not trusting that he's going to speak to us, that he doesn't meet with us because we're not really looking for him. Dear believer, perhaps you're feeling that decline within. And dear believer, I'd urge you to get back close to the Lord again. I'd urge you, if you left off the Lord in the reading of the Bible, return to the reading of the Word. If it's prayer, if it's being in the house of God, friend, whatever it is, if it's some sin unconfessed, let it go and get back to Christ. Dear believer tonight, we're often so used to the words of reconciliation, hell, death, judgment, sin. We forget their true meaning and they lose their resonance with us. We'd be so cold to the unconverted, to the unsaved. Why? Because we forget we were once the same. The gamblers, the alcoholic, those who swear repeatedly, the adulterer, those full of the lust of the flesh, they were the marks of our characters and our identities before we were saved. We often get the hackles up when an unsaved person rejects a gospel tract. Perhaps somebody in work, they don't want to listen to you telling them about Christ. Don't we get angry at times? Don't we think, what is the point? Do we not remember that the same pit that those people are in, we were dug from? And it's only by the grace of God that he dug us out of us. Nothing in us. Dear believer, tonight we need to remember what Christ has saved us from. That will humble us before God. That will show us where we have come from and how far we have come. Old John Newton was lying on his deathbed and he was thinking about what had happened in his life. And he says, my memory is almost gone. But two things I remember. The first is this, that I am a great sinner. And the second is that Christ is a great saviour. Spurgeon, with all his knowledge, one particular time there was a newspaper reporter came to Spurgeon and there was a great 
book of theology that was only out that week and it was a, a vast tomb of theology as it were. It was thousands of pages. And that reporter trying to trick the dear man of God picked out something out of the middle of the book and said, Mr. Spurgeon, explain this to me. Spurgeon answered her and he, he was able to give her it word for word. He knew it. But Spurgeon, with all his knowledge, all that, he condensed it down. He says, my entire theology, my entire Christian life, all I believe can be condensed into four little words. Jesus died for me. Dear believer, tonight, let us remember that, what Christ did for us on the cross. And sinner, tonight, I say this with all the love of my heart. Go to a nearby graveyard. Take a walk amongst those lonely, silent tombs. There appears to be no noise, as it were, but tune thine ear and listen to what you hear. Listen to lives that have ended. We all must needs die. Listen to what they say. And are as water spilt in the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Lives ended. Where are they with Christ? You often look at gravestones as you're in a graveyard. And it says, safe in the arms of Jesus or with the Lord. You wonder if the person was actually saved. Were they trusting Christ? There are so many in this world and this country as a whole and they're trusting on anything but Jesus Christ. Friend, don't you make the same mistake? It doesn't matter what a man will tell you. It doesn't matter what a church will tell you. It doesn't matter what some creed you're following will tell you. It doesn't matter if you were confirmed or if you signed a decision card all those years ago. If you're not trusting Christ in your heart, if you don't have your sins dealt with through his blood, you're not saved tonight. If there's no love for Christ, no love for his word, no turning away from sin, no love for the brethren, friend, I would doubt your profession tonight. Where are you with Christ? The words of that verse, and are as water spilt on the ground. That is the second reality that sinner must face. There is a deferred retribution. And then lastly tonight, briefly, there is a promised deliverance. Look at the end of verse 14, what it says here. Yet doth he devise, this is God, yet doth God devise means that God's banished be not expelled from him. Promised deliverance. His banished refers to those who by sin have been banished from his presence. We think in Genesis 3 and verse 24, and not turned to for sake of time, but there it speaks of Adam being drove out of the garden because he had sinned against God. He was banished from God's presence. Because he had broken his commands. Friend, tonight you and I are banished. We're not saved. Believer, tonight you and I were the banished ones. We were banished from his presence. Sinner, tonight you're banished still. You have no hope of fellowship with him. Because God hates sin and can have no fellowship with sin of those who follow it. But look at what the verse says. Yet doth he devise means. Look carefully. It doesn't say yet doth man devise. It doesn't say a priest device, a minister device, a church device, a council of godly men device. It says God devises the means. The words, means, can be read, plan a device. God plans a device, a way that those who are banished be not expelled from him. The word expelled, it means thrust out. And so to put that all together, what it really means is so that those who are at this moment separated from him by their sins may not be forever cast away from him what that part of the verse is saying friend is that god planned a way that sinners who are far away from him may not be forever lost it's referring to the sinner dying without christ 
and being forever lost in that awful place called hell where there is no hope or remedy or chance of escape. God devised a way. That's the promised deliverance, friend. Unbeliever, no banished from him tonight and in danger of being permanently expelled and unchangeably expelled from him, yet there is that promised deliverance. And what is that deliverance? Simply this, is the blood of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and the verse 18. If you turn with me there, please, to 2 Corinthians 5 and the verse 18. We'll read a portion of Scripture together. 2 Corinthians 5 and the verse 18. We'll just read it together. And it reads there, just as we close, And all things are of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18. And all things are of God. And here it is. Who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That last clause is talking about Paul being a minister of the gospel. The gospel reconciles men to God. But it is that middle part. Who hath reconciled us to himself by what? By Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the plan. Jesus Christ is the device. His blood and his death is the device that banished ones may not be expelled from his presence. Christ came to this earth and he lived that sinless life and he died that atoning death through his birth, his life, death and resurrection. I am the way, Christ said. God the Father in eternity passed before man fell, devised a way. You know, the fall did not take God by surprise. The fall was not some event that threw off God's plan for the world. God had already promised a deliverance for mankind. Titus 1 verse 2 tells us this. In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised what? Before the world began. You look at all the patriarchs and the prophets before Christ came. You think of Noah. When he left the ark, what did he do? He sacrificed. It was a picture of Christ. No one knew Christ was coming. It talks in Second Peter about Noah being a preacher of righteousness. Look at what Abel did. He brought the better offering. What was it? It was a blood sacrifice. It was picturing Christ. You think of Jacob there at the end of Genesis. He talks about Shiloh coming, a picture of Christ. They knew he was coming. The promised deliverance was a Messiah who would take away sin. A Messiah, a Christ, the Lord Christ would come and shed his blood and make atonement for the sins of his people. That is the means God devised, friend. Praise God if you're saved tonight. Your salvation was in the mind of God before the world began. Christ was promised before the world began. Christ was chosen as the mediator before the world began. And if you're not saved tonight, the promised deliverance is available to any who will come. That's the third reality. There is the certain destruction. All men must die. There is a deferred retribution. You have not been cast off yet, but you will if you do not repent. But there is the third reality. There is that promised deliverance. Repentant sinners, humble sinners, Christ will not despise. What will you do with Christ tonight? Will you come to him? You ask me, how can I be saved tonight? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to wash you in his blood, to cleanse you from your sins. Put all your faith and trust in him. And look to him and stake your eternity on him tonight. By faith alone. And he will save you now and for all of God's great eternity. Believer, let us rejoice in Christ tonight and what he has done for us, that we who were banished, we will never be expelled. Unbeliever, make Christ your choice tonight, I trust and pray. I trust you'll go out of this meeting saved for now, for all of God's great eternity. Amen. We're just going to close our meeting just by saying a couple of verses of a hymn together.
just a couple of verses of the hymn 292. 292, please. We're going to sing the first, uh, second, and the third verse, verse 1, 2, and 3, please, of 292. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. We'll stand to sing this hymn together. praises that we've sang and we pray O God that thou would bless us tonight we thank thee O God for the marvellous gospel the light of the world through Christ our Lord and we pray O God that thou would save any unsaved tonight Lord as the voice of man is silent that the still small voice of God would speak on bless thy people Lord as we've entered another week lead us close to Christ help us Lord to look to Jesus always and ever the author and the finisher of our faith grant us journey mercies home and O God be with us the rest of this night we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. <laughs> 